Hey, everybody. Volker Kron is the guest today. And glad you're here because there's something different when we have conversations with teachers. Volker's been a teacher for more than 30 years. It just goes deeper. I love the way he starts with his own reflections, his own journey, his own childhood, and then really moves into his love of the work. And I think perhaps what I love the most is Volker's growth mindset. He's always looking to learn, always looking to grow. See if you can pick that up in this episode. Thanks for listening. Glad you're here. Please enjoy. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning, and on this podcast, we catch up with graduates of the process and have a conversation with them about how their work in the process is informing their life outside of the process, how their spirit and how their love are living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. Volker Kron is with us. Volker, welcome. Hi, Drew. It's great to be having this conversation. Volker, you've been with the Australian process since 1991. Is that right? Uh, well, I did my process in 89 and went through the training program with Bob Hoffman. He came over here for, I think, the first two years to actually set up the institute. And um, so I, I did the second, the second process here in Australia. And you are the director there, the CEO, and a supervising facilitator. And um, your process takes place in beautiful Byron Bay. Would you share a little bit about, you know, here in the U.S., when it was at White Sulphur Springs, certainly the womb of the valley there with the redwoods, and now we're at the retreat site on San Antonio Road up on a hilltop. And I have heard such beautiful things about your site and the surrounding area of Byron Bay. Will you describe that a little bit? It's uh, it's on the easter, the most easterly point of Australia. So it sticks out in the Pacific Ocean. It's a quite a unique place. It's called original caretakers that which was the Bundjalung nation or the Arakwal people they used to call it Kabanba and it basically means a place of gathering and healing it's interesting because we've got the biggest volcano on the planet which now has been basically mute for many many millennia however it, it is a place where we have probably 62 percent of all the species uh, varieties in New South Wales congregate in this particular area so we've got a beautiful venue that is on the first little hill rise so it looks out over the pacific ocean over the Rockville national park for example the the whales when they migrate we can actually see them from from the veranda which is a beautiful spot wow we will make sure to put in our show notes some photos and anything else you reference in this podcast check out the show notes because 
that will be a great source of information. Volker, will you just share a little bit about your story and how you came to be you in the world? Obviously, had a mother and a father, <laughs> so, <laughs> and uh, they were they were business people. My my father basically took it over from my great grandfather. It was a business where we were they were selling cars, car dealership, some also machinery to to farms as well as container boats. And I was born, and I was supposed to be take over the family business. What was a probably a very big change in my life was when my father contracted cancer when I was just a young teenage boy, and he passed away when I was 15. So I had one of those fathers that uh, was very benign, and I also feel very privileged because I, even though I had a German father, because he had an accident, he didn't have to fight in the war. So I have probably one of those the rare fathers in Germany that didn't have to kill anybody. So my father was actually very light-hearted man. My mother was a little bit more, and wonderful, probably carried more the masculine in the family. She was a wonderful businesswoman and an astute woman. I sometimes would describe her the, the German version of Margaret Thatcher. So she was a she was a strong woman. However, I guess my father's passing away basically had a big change for the whole family. And all of a sudden, I guess my father, there's this old song, Teach Your Children Well. In that particular song, it says, teach your children well, their father's hell will slowly go by and feed them on your dreams, the one they pick, the one you will be known by. And what I realized, what my father, because of his lack of proper interaction with me, didn't feed me his dreams. What he did give me, and for many years, I actually resented it. I thought it was a form of neglect and abandonment until I did actually the Hoffman process. And I realized that what he actually did give me was freedom. And so that was the dream that he fed me. And I was lucky and privileged enough to be able to follow that dream. And you were born and raised in Germany and yet ended up in Australia. That's correct, yes. After I, I went in numerous studies, basically, from 18 to, to 26, and I was able to postpone conscription, which we still had in those days in Germany. It's a military draft, you know, so, and, and I realized I didn't really want to commit any kind of um, crime because it was a crime not to go to your draft. But if the authorities weren't able to send you the, the draft papers, you didn't commit a crime. So I decided to go for two years abroad. And I ended up first I tried out America. And, and, and I realized America was a little bit, let's call it the, the collective consciousness of America is as highly competitive. And I realized I couldn't really compete with that level of fervor of having to be the best in whatever it is that you want to do. And so I came over to Australia and a friend of mine basically gave me some some places to to land and which was really quite easy. And I guess Australia is the land of she'll be right. So there's not that much competitiveness in Australia. And it was uh, in that sense Australia I felt very embraced. And uh, I also fell in love, so I met my wife here, and so I guess the rest is history. 
And when did you take the process? I did it in January 1989, and Bob Hoffman was actually my facilitator. I was to say it didn't save my life, but it saved my lifestyle because it really helped me to understand why, despite certain privilege I've had, I always felt a sense of, uh, I had a very strong inner critic. That's probably the best way how I can say it. And no matter what I did, it was never really quite right. And, uh, and it also, that inner critic really usurped my, my confidence. So the process really helped me to understand where that actually originated from, and then also tools and uh, corrective experience to move beyond it. And some 33 years ago, curious about moments that stand out for you. And having taught it so much over the years, I wonder how much it gets confused with your own experience of teaching it to students. Probably main things that stood out for me was particularly when, when we go into the compassion writing and talking to, to the child of the mother, the child of the father when they were small, to shift perspective, to understand the socioeconomic context, the historical context in which they grew up in. And going into that line of inquiry really helped me to, to understand my parents' suffering. And what it really did, it helped me as I said before, I didn't have, my father was quite distant, but it helped me to really understand my father and who he was and why he was so distant. And that understanding really brought up a new level of, of acceptance and forgiveness for who he was. And is that when you went on to pursue a master's and decide you want to do this work? What happened after you left your process? Well, look, I then was invited because I, in those days, I actually worked as a, as a body worker. So I have a, also a German naturopath degree as well. And in those days, we used to run these three and a half months live in programs, also in Byron Bay at that time. And so what we were teaching people, deep connective tissue massage with various other modalities and meditations and so forth. So I had that as a background, but when I did the process, I knew that the process worked, but I didn't really quite understand why. So in, my, in the 90s, I then went about and wanted to also find a way of not only knowing that the work is effective, but why it is effective. So I then went and studied family therapy, self-psychology, and existential arts therapy. So these are my degrees in psychotherapy, and that has helped me to develop properly a language to describe the process and also understand why the process really works. I mean, that is such a good question because so many people testify to the power of the process and yet describing how these different experiences put together, curated one atop the other over and over again throughout the week, why it works. What did you come up with as an answer? So there, there are different ways how to, how to look into it. So I think the process is a form of psycho-spiritual work. And if you, if you look at the spiritual path, there are basically two major spiritual paths. There's one, it's called the Yana path, which is the path of understanding. 
And one of the representations of that would be, for example, Zen Buddhism, where you really try to understand your ego structure and, uh, and witness it. Then there's also what they call the bhakti path, which is the path of devotion. So in the spiritual traditions, there would be the Sufis, for example, prayer, dancing, and where you basically allow yourself to express the glory of, of the divine. Now, all, and I think that's where all spiritual teachers are in alignment with, is that eventually these two paths need to meet. So if you only have follow the path of knowledge, of jnana, it becomes kind of cool. It doesn't awaken the, the, the heart center. And sometimes with people who, who are more down the bhakti path, the path of devotion, they sometimes lack the understanding of their own particular patterns and ego structures. And all they can do is then pray a little louder to, in order to come back into an experience of their divine nature. So I think where the process really works wonderfully is that it brings those two elements together, where you have the understanding through understanding our behavioral patterns. We help people, obviously, to, if they have certain problems in their life, even interpersonal sensitivities or relationship breakdowns with children or with spouses, or, or sometimes also just a lack of confidence in the world. So we help people to understand what are the patterns that create those situations and then bring in obviously a more psychodynamic element into it where we then also trace it back from which parent would have learned it. So that is really the path of yana, of understanding, of understanding really our ego structure and where it originated. Then through the expressive work that we do in the process, it, you can call some of the expressive work as a form of cathartic prayer, if you like. So where we then make a stand away from our ego structure, which is represented between the emotional child and the intellect versus our spiritual self. So we allow people to come more and more into presence and obviously interrupting basically where our consciousness is trapped in the past or in the future by the interaction between the emotional child and the intellect. That's deep, Volker. I love the way in which you've understood that and we'll include your paper on it in the show notes. Given that you do and practice psychotherapy and yet you also facilitate the process, what do you notice about the difference and why someone should do the process uh, as opposed to engage in therapy? What distinctions do you make there? I don't believe in anything being the ultimate. Uh, I think in psychotherapy versus the Hoffman process, it's a tricky one. So I think when people come to us, we always screen them. We try to find out what is it that's present in their life right now and is this the right time to go into the process. I think the process should only be, be taken by people who want to do it. There are lots of people who need it, but uh, because the process is very much helping people to be able to stand in the authority of their own knowing, and it's about personal responsibility taking, that needs to be there right from the very beginning. That supervisor, Dr. Bill McLeod, used to say, like, people usually change not when they have a good idea of that they want to change, but because their ass is on fire. So... 
So we need to then, however, when that happens, direct people to the right kind of healing methodology. And sometimes it's good for them to do some more individual work, particularly if they are inundated with some trauma situations that they, first of all, need to feel resourced enough to actually go into into the process, which is a bit of a hero's journey because it is not necessarily for the lighthearted, but for the people who are who are willing to change, it really speeds up the healing process dramatically. And I think one of the main reasons is that I'm widening out here a little bit. It's another probably explanation theory, if you like it. I think the process also works on balancing out our instinctual energies. And I think we can make the distinction of three major instincts that we all carry. So there's the self-preservation instinct, there is the the one-on-one or sexual instinct, and then there's the social instinct. So the self-preservation instinct operates more in the domains of, let's say, finances, health, domesticity. The, the sexual is more around affiliation, feeling connected, more about being attracted to somebody. It can, doesn't necessarily have to be a, a person, can be also an object. Sometimes people experience a lot of sexual energy in regards to cars, for example. In America, guns, some people. <laughs> so, But it's about the attraction, the sexual energy is around being attracted getting activated by something outside ourselves and also wanting to merge and fuse with others. And the social instinct operates more in the domains of attunement, affiliation, feeling belonging, and also making a contribution to the wider good. I think that we all, particularly when we are struggling, some of these instincts get out of balance. So there's one instinct that we overexpress, another that we are that we repress. And usually we repress it because it's associated with some level of shame. What the process really does on an instinctual level, it's not necessarily spoken about per se, but it offers corrective experiences. For example, some of the journaling work that we do in the process, that's a corrective experience around the self-preservation instinct because we have to go in, we have to be self-reflective. So it's a, the energy goes more internal. The, the expressive work that we do, that's very much works on the one-on-one or the sexual instinct. And so we have a corrective experience where people can re-embrace their aliveness, their libido in that moment. And because it's also conducted in a group setting, even though it's more individual work done in a group setting, but it's still, you have the group experience when we explore toxic shame and people then also have a corrective experience that their toxic shame beliefs can be shared to benevolent witnesses and there's a healing that occurs. So people from all different misalignments on their instinctual energies will receive a corrective experience. And I think that is also one of the reasons why the process works. If you ask me, what's the difference between individual psychotherapy and the work that we do in the process? In the one-on-one session work and psychotherapy, you do not get the group work. You do not get that reflection from other people. And what the process really does through the healing, that people have an experience of feeling reinitiated into the family of humanity. Wow. Let's pause there, Volker. That's really good. Reinitiated into 
the family of humanity. Beautiful. And how did we get cast out in the first place? Well, I could go into Bob Hoffman's, and I think that's probably one of his greatest conceptual contribution to to healing or psycho-spiritual healing that Bob Hoffman made, and that's obviously represented in the negative love syndrome. You know, Volker, as you were talking, I couldn't help but notice that those styles, those types, are part of the subtypes of the Enneagram. And that's not a coincidence, I imagine. No, that's not a coincidence. There's an old standing tradition and relationship between Bob Hoffman and Dr. Naranjo, who basically brought the Enneagram more into the psychotherapeutic community. And they were old friends, actually. Naranjo was the one who helped Bob bring the process and present the process and the group process in which we are running it now. I remember when I did my pre-course work, you might remember all the different cluster headings, and they were designed with the Enneagram in mind. So you could also use it as an Enneagram teacher, or you could use the pre-course work as a diagnostic tool to understand which Enneotype might be acting out or might be, be identified with. Volker, we'll, we'll put a link, of course, in there about the Enneagram, but why... Do you think it's so powerful? Of course, there's nine types. And then I guess a word or two about that kind of typing or the way in which we use tests to see ourselves. Why is there value there? As a facilitator of the program, I think it's important for us to have a diagnostic tool because it can inform us how we want to interact with our clients and helping them. And so I much more prefer the Enneagram because it's a much more dynamic model. It's more sophisticated and it also doesn't pathologize as much as, for example, DSM-5. If you have a client that's highly anxious, which could be described maybe as in, in DSM-5 as, as slightly schizoid, Enneagram, the portion might be more the six, for example, five, six, thereabouts. With people that come to us and try to get help, if we understand that they are highly anxious and obviously have to process their fear through their thinking, that we need to reassure them that we're not going to take over their mind, but that we're actually helping them to come more into the authority of their own knowing, right? If you have, however, somebody who's got a more severe narcissistic wound, for example, that's where it's also really important to recognize that those kind of people are extremely sensitive to any form of criticism. And understanding that then can help us to actually create the safety that's necessary for them to relax and find their own insights and their own healing. For example, if you have somebody who's maybe a little bit more borderline, that's where it's also good to recognize that the behavior can't be just empathically attuned to. It needs to also be confronted so they can get better. So I think it's important for people who actually teach this work that they also have some level of diagnosis, how I need to then function for my client for them to get the best result out of the program. I, I love that, that, that important piece of understanding who is in front of us in their hero's journey. And wouldn't you say one of the, the gifts of the process is that it 
doesn't pathologize people, as you said, that it really does see it as this is fundamental to being human. Correct, yeah. However, when we are identified with our our patterns, and a lot of people are very much identified with patterns, and, and I guess what the process does, it helps people to zoom out from their wound and the, the pattern compensation to be able to then stop and have a different response to, to when they're being triggered. Volker, in my work as a teacher, I've noticed recently a few more people describing climate anxiety. And one student recently referenced it as climate depression. And I know you're an avid environmentalist and care deeply about the world around you. Will you just reflect a little bit on, do you see that over there? And I know Australia is in the midst of its own environmental struggles. How does the process address that? And what are your thoughts? That's a very big topic here. So look, I... Look, it's it's a really interesting question, Drew. I think on one level, anybody who doesn't feel an environmental anxiety right now is disconnected from their own knowing and understanding and feelings. So we're going through one of the greatest extinction crises on the planet since the, the dinosaurs were wiped out. It's actually much faster when the meteorite hit the planet. And that is, on one level, that's, that seems to be of scientific facts currently. A lot of people also see that, and particularly also, I think, the younger generation, they also suffer a certain level of NOE, because when I grew up in the 70s, I was a teenager in the 70s, there was enormous amount of hope. There was still, I mean, I still remember the year I was born, there were 3.2 billion people on the planet. Now it's 8.2 billion. So that's just in one lifetime more than doubled. And obviously, as humans, we have an enormous amount of impact on, on our planet, even though there are some voices that try to deny it. There's too much evidence that speaks against it. So on one level, the people who suffer from environmental anxiety, on one level, they are really the good people. There are There's a perception in their consciousness where there is some level of realism in that. You know, so they are actually present to it. And I think that's the work of the process because it very much helps us to re-embrace our grieving heart, if you like it, because we do a lot of grief work in the process. We need to be able to express the sadness and the pain that actually lives in our heart that was probably produced, first of all, in our family of origin to some extent or another. However, once we re-embrace our, our heart, and I think that's the price we have to pay for expansion of consciousness, we feel things more. So we feel the good as well as the bad. We feel also then more the sadness of the loss of habitat and of our planet. We need to feel it on one level because that probably will help us to recognize that everything is interconnected. And I think that is the, the message of the process. It helps us, helps everybody to realize that all spiritual selves are equal. 
we need to find understanding and forgiveness and compassion for for ourselves and also we do that by understanding our parents and their let's call it psychopathology or their their patterns and their pain their their suffering that they went went through and so the process helps people to embrace suffering it doesn't take away the suffering but it helps us to suffer well and uh, in regards to the work that we also do here in australia it is also because we're conducting it also in a in an environmentally very beautiful place so in the moments when we get out of our own mind and can be totally present and then see our natural world i think that's where real spirituality lives in the recognition that we are not apart from nature but we are nature and we can however have if we become conscious have more agency of how to direct it so in a time where sometimes there's not a lot of hope i do see our work as something that gives some hope and also helps people to develop some level of agency to to move forward and we get these wonderful new ceos and entrepreneurs they come and do our work and they're incredibly inspired and they really try to make a difference and i think the process gives them a underlying spiritual basis how to actually live in accordance to the values the intrinsic values of their heart the intrinsic values of their heart volka you're not just helping people heal their childhoods you're really helping them show up to life there's so much more at work as you describe it and even though the process does start with the childhood of the student filling out the paperwork and we go back in time even if you had a good childhood or perceive that you had a happy childhood the process is still for you right yes look i like caputi who once said suffering is the great equalizer rich or poor we all suffer so even if we had a good childhood and i if i reflected back on my i've i've had a privileged upbringing i never went for food i had always my parents we went on lovely holidays there was lovely food around and uh, i was well educated so i had very little pain in my childhood apart from my father passing away which was a big one but until then i would say i had a blessed childhood nevertheless i still was impacted by the trauma that my parents went through particularly through the third reich in germany in the nazi time so they were all traumatized i would even say it probably doesn't only apply to germany probably to to most people in in europe at that time that they all suffered from trauma there was collective trauma there i certainly internalized my my mother's very strong perfectionism her very strong black and white thinking that i always was rebelling against and my father's abandonment and neglect i had interpreted as that i wasn't lovable i wasn't good enough i wasn't beaten <laughs> i wasn't abused as a child or anything like that nevertheless i carried those inner voices and i think anybody 
grew up in a patriarchal system will have the experience of being disconnected from their own essence. And the process really helps us to find that reconnection. Beautiful, Volker. You are doing well there. I imagine COVID has amplified people's need for help. And it. I checked out your website. It looks like you're, you're full up for at least to the end of the year almost. Yeah, we're full to the end of the year. And uh, I think the one thing that COVID really did, it created a stop and people had to go into isolation. And if we are, because our societies are so, so directed towards actions, we have to do something. And all our life is spent into doing this. And we miss being a human being. I saw that with a lot of people, then all of a sudden, couples, they were able to keep their marriage or the relationship together because there was a love time apart. And so they would meet again for a couple of hours. But as people were now, put into, into their homes and had to spend more time with their family and their spouses, that the underlying misalignments actually came, came to the forefront. And unless people have some tools how to process things, they actually very struggled with it. So we've had a lot of people coming to us needing that kind of support. And you still love teaching it after all these years, I imagine. Yes, I do. I think we as teachers of this work are incredibly privileged to be able to turn people on or to provide a context where people can retrieve and find their innate lovability. And you're getting paid for it. There's not bad, no better word, work for it on the planet, really. Do you speak about the process in talks and what's it like to reflect on it here and your upbringing and the Claudio Naranjo and Bob Hoffman. What's it been like to sit down and chat about the retreat site in Australia and your recollections of Bob, Claudio, and the process? It's delightful. I really love talking about our work and the insights that I gleaned from having worked with it for over 30 years now. And I'm still as passionate about it, probably to some extent even more so than when I was in my 30s, when I took over the Institute. I guess in those days, I didn't have as much confidence in our work because I just didn't have as much experience. Now, having taken thousands of people through this program, I really can see its efficacy. And uh, I personally think that Bob Hoffman was way before his time. As you probably know, he received the major steps of the program on a more intuitive level. Now, science has caught up with it. You guys in America, you've had this wonderful research that was done by the University of California and, and where it really shows that the process is uh, in regards to anxiety and depression way more effective than cognitive behavioral therapy or drug therapy. I think the process is just about to come into its own as a, as a methodology to really start to shift consciousness on this planet. Beautiful, Volker. We haven't met, but I look forward to maybe a Hoffman International Gathering. Listeners should know that all the centers from around the world come together, is it every other year, but not so since COVID? Not so since COVID, so we're trying to put together another conference. 
and we'll just have to see whether we'll be able to do one next year. If not next year, we definitely do one the year after. So, and that would be lovely to see all the, the different teachers, facilitators from different countries and to exchange our notes and, uh, and, and learn from one another. Because what I love about the process, there's constant evolution with this work. And I think particularly also the Americans and the English speakers, there are lots of people, different institutes, who've made some finer contribution and finer distinctions in regards to some of the steps. The steps are still the same, but the way it has been delivered has shifted enormously since the, since the 80s or the 90s. What's really interesting, fascinating for me is because I've worked with this pathway for over three decades now, it's interesting for me to see also how consciousness has shifted. I still remember back in the 90s, we had long discussions with participants whether there's such a thing as childhood conditioning. That's no longer a, a point of discussion. So we've accepted that. We've had long discussions with people whether there's such a, a, such a thing as the spiritual self or might, you might want to call it, refer to it, or some just refer to it as the position of mindfulness. Now, this is no longer a point of contention, and that gives me hope. Just in 30 years' time, I actually do see that there has been quite a significant shift in, in our collective consciousness. It is worth noting for, for people to understand that although this was developed early by Bob, it has always had learning and growth as a part of its orientation, as a part of its development. It's been tweaked and refined throughout its history to keep up with what we know to be true, as you just gave a couple different examples. Yeah, that's correct. We do teach a learning mindset. The sequencing of the process, I think that's what makes the difference between recognition expressive work, compassion work, and then also behavioral modification through some of the tools that we, we offer our clients. That is all the same, but the way we actually help people to get into the experience, and that makes the difference. Because a lot of people are so identified, either overwhelmed by their thinking, so where their intellect runs the show and is usually concerned about disaster in the future, these are probably more the people who suffer more from anxiety, whereas there are also some people who are more identified with the emotional child and the feelings, and where the emotional child starts to act out, and where we then, where people then also have depression and deep sadness. Understanding that we are not our thinking, we are not our feeling either. They are aspects of our ego structure. If we're identified, we're either in the past or we're in the future. But what the process really does, it helps people to come back into beingness and to be able to zoom out from that level of, of reactivity of our thinking and feeling to come back into being at peace with oneself and then also at peace with others. Volker, it is the next day in Australia. You're heading out for your day. My day is winding down. What's on tap for you? Do you have a process going on? Uh, we're actually running a process right now, so I'm going to meet up with our facilitator team for lunch. So that's what I have, and then I have a couple sessions that I have to conduct today. Volker, thanks for your time. I am so grateful for this conversation. 
Well, it's been really lovely, and thank you for for listening, and thank you for your good questions. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Ras Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.